Over the last, last eight weeks, we've been discussing this very fundamental issue of joy and energy in the service of God. It's very easy to tell somebody how to live, but it's very hard for him to live that way if he doesn't feel motivated to do that. And many things can get in the way of a person's motivation. We talked about many elements. Sadness from financial problems. Lack of motivation from guilt. Lack of motivation from the struggle of life. Lack of motivation from the struggle of identity. These were all things we talked about in previous chapters. Lack of motivation that comes from a numbness. And the Alter Rebbe addressed each of these different elements with practical solutions how to surmount these challenges. And then he said, when you get your motivation back, there's a moment of clarity that you experience. And the mission of life is to sustain that clarity for as long as you can. To keep holding on to that light that came to you, that light bulb that went off and showed you the way that you're supposed to live. With energy, you want to hold on to that. And the key to holding on to that is to be what we called a soul person, not a body person. At any given moment, we can choose to view our Yiddishkeit through our body or through our soul. Is it a pain or is it a joy? And when you become a soul person, what happens is you experience more happiness, you experience more love, and last week we talked about you experience more faith. Because to truly surrender to that which is sublime and that which is above our brains takes a leap, a leap of faith that only your soul can make. A lot of beautiful ideas and essentially what happens in this chapter is the Alter Rebbe asks the question of where to from here where do I go with this as a human being I'm faced with limitations I have a job right there that cuts out many hours in my day I have a family that's a whole responsibility for itself I have a community, more responsibility. There's so much that we're tied up with that when we're confronted with so much truth and beautiful academic thoughts, we have to always ask ourselves, can I, can I integrate this? To what extent can I make this part of my life? It almost seems like Hasidus is exclusive. The guys that have time to meditate for an hour or two before davening and they can afford to wrap themselves in talus and tefillin for another three hours and then have a chance to learn Torah for the next five hours, they could do chassidus. They could live with the soul. They could have the tremendous motivation that's required to serve God. But me, look what, look what kind of circumstances I was born into. Look what kind of upbringing I had. Look how busy my life is right now. Where does... Where does the connecting the dots happen? Where do I take all this divine consciousness and make it a part of my schedule? Can I? If I was born into the wrong, you know, the wrong circumstances, am I robbed of that opportunity to truly experience Hashem? So of course the answer is no. Of course the answer is every single Jew 
has an opportunity, has the chance, has the ability to connect himself with that which is beyond our physical world. And yes, it's true that not every person will be able to do it to the same degree. But nobody can say, I can't have a part of it. And the Alter Rebbe reduces it to two things. Learn Torah, give tzedakah. That's it. Learn Torah, give tzedakah. Make time in your schedule to study Torah. And make time or make space in your material wealth for Hashem. And this will be your conduit to carry Hashem into your life. That's the whole chapter. Essentially. But even though I asked the question that way, it's not exactly the way the Alter Rebbe frames the question and answer. The way he frames the question and answer is a Jew compares himself to the, to the great Jews of previous generations. <coughs> Something we discussed a number of months ago is the concept of a Merkava. A Merkava literally means a chariot. Or in today's day and age, we might translate it as any vehicle of transportation, a car, a plane, these all go into the category of Merkava. What do we know about transportation vehicles? First, they get us from point A to point B. But our feet also do that. Our feet also get us from point A to point B. So what's unique about a transportation vehicle? A transportation vehicle can get us to places that we couldn't get on our own. We can walk two miles, three miles, 10 miles, but a car within the space of an hour can get us 50 miles, 100 miles. A plane within the space of five hours can get us 3,000 miles across. And another very important thing we know about transportation vehicles is that they are completely submitted to the driver, to the pilot. Maybe, maybe not so soon with automated driving and stuff, but for now. They have no will of their own. They do exactly what you tell them to do. Maybe not uh, my car, but many cars. You know that joke of the uh, Israeli who went to visit the guy in Texas? And he, he, heard about, he heard about how in Texas they have these huge ranches. So he wanted to come see one for himself, so he comes into the place. And the guy takes him to the back of his house. He says, you see, you see all this space in front of you? He says, yeah, he says, it's all mine. And there's more that you can't see. In fact, it takes my tractor three days to drive across my whole property. So the Israeli says, yeah, I also had a tractor like that once. Fresh <laughs> taste. But typically the car or the tractor or the plane does exactly what the owner or the driver wants it to do. And Kabbalistically, the concept of being a Merkava for God, being a chariot or a car or a plane for God, means exactly those two things. It means, number one, you can carry God to a place that He cannot go by Himself. Hashem created the world with His own parameters, self-imposed limitations. He said, I don't want myself to be apparent, obviously, in this world. I want you to make me apparent. 
when you do a mitzvah, when you study Torah, you will be a chariot, a vehicle, a conduit that carries me into the world. And secondly, to be a Merkava is to be completely submitted to the will of your Creator. So we get to experience being a Merkava for a moment in time. The moment we're doing something proper, the moment we're doing a davening or a tefillin or eating kosher, we become in that window of time, we become a Merkava. But imagine being a chariot to God. It says in the Zohar that Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, the three patriarchs, were a Merkava to God their entire lifetime. And the Alter Rebbe in a different book of his says, even when they slept. So think about that. Even when they were sleeping, they were completely egoless, had no reality of existence of themselves. It was completely whatever Hashem was having flow through them at that moment. They were consistently carrying Hashem into the world, bringing divine consciousness into the world, and they were constantly nullified before Him. Moshe Rabbeinu is described in many places in the works of our sages as even surpassing that level. The terminology that we use is Shechina medaberet mitoch grono. The Shechina spoke, the Divine Presence spoke from His throat. Him talking was God talking. What that basically means is that Moshe was completely absorbed, subsumed in the reality of the Creator that for him the truth shone all the time. So when he spoke, it was Hashem's words because there are no other words in the true universe. And the true universe is only Hashem's thought, Hashem's speech. So Moshe Rabbeinu was in a physical embodiment of infinity. And therefore, not only was he a constant Merkava, a chariot to God, God riding, so to speak, within him, but God literally spoke through him. There's another book from the Alter Rebbe. It's a book on the Chumash. It's called the Kutei Torah. And there he writes that not only when Moshe communicated to the Jewish people did Hashem speak through his mouth, even when he had private study sessions with God, it was God speaking through him. So you can imagine what kind of awesome back and forth that is. It's like being present when God speaks to himself. It's a completely transcendent experience. So we have, we have the patriarchs, we have Moshe Rabbeinu, and then the third category that the Alter Rebbe addresses is the entirety of the Jewish people at the giving of the Torah. We experience the taste of that. Avram Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu's reality, we got a taste of it at the foot of Mount Sinai. Because Hashem and godliness was revealed in a way that never before and never after would be, would be apparent. You know, it says, when God spoke, His voice came from all directions, but there was no echo. The Rebbe once explained, every miracle has to have a meaning and a significance. That God doesn't do miracles for nothing. What's the significance of not having an echo by the giving of the Torah? So, scientifically, we know what, cre- what, what, what creates an echo. How come in some places there's a bigger echo and a stronger echo? It's a reflection. The sound is bouncing back. In other words, the sound hasn't penetrated. It hits the wall. It bounces back. In a place where you have insulation, 
or something which absorbs the sound, now there's no echo. So the meaning of no echo by the giving of the Torah is that godliness penetrated every single being in the world. Nothing bounced back godliness. Everything was taken in. Everything was absorbed. That's why it says the world was quiet. There was no sound effects. Because everyone was completely attuned to taking in what it was that Hashem was giving us. But we only got a taste. That's why the Midrash says that all the Jews passed away. In the moment that God came down on the mountain, all the Jews' souls left their bodies. They had to be revived by Hashem. Because we couldn't handle that immense revelation. So the overarching idea, the overarching idea is that these were people that were able to immerse themselves completely in whatever, whatever it was that Hashem wanted. These were people that were able to plug in whenever they wanted, pretty much at will, and experience Hashem. So that's the framework for the question the Alter Rebbe presents in the chapter. He says, how can I really live with my soul when I can't even experience my own soul? I, I get glimpses to it, maybe on Yom Kippur, maybe on Rosh Hashanah, if I'm even more refined, maybe monthly, daily, weekly. But it's only, it's only a glimpse. You want to talk about Avraham Avinu? I get it. Moshe Rabbeinu? I get it. Harsinai, even the Jews at Harsinai, they only got it for a moment. You want me to internalize, to live with my, 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 my neshama at all times? So here the Alter Rebbe says, the Torah and Hashem only demands from you what you're able to do. And Hashem, knowing that, his Jewish people would come to a time when their spiritual experiences are, are limited, he also squeezed himself into very accessible parts of his Judaism. The Talmud says, so long as we had the Holy Temple, the Beit HaMikdash was the nerve center where it was possible to see spirituality in the moment not abstract academic ideas. You were able to experience it. From the day that the temple was destroyed, from the day that the temple was destroyed, Hashem only has the four cubits of Jewish law. And what that means is Hashem contracted, compressed His infinity into his Torah. And to learn Torah is to experience the divine. That's why Torah is infinite. Unlike any other study in the world. Everything has parameters. Everything has limitations. Torah is infinite wisdom. Because Torah is an expression of God's infinity. And it's why there's nothing like learning Torah. Anybody that's gotten involved in, this, in serious Torah study knows that there's absolutely no experience like it in the world. To debate, to question, to answer, to challenge, to prove, to refute, to reject, to come up with a new insight, to learn about God, 
to study the cosmos, to study the universe, to study the workings of creation. There's absolutely nothing like it. And it's not because we're just better on the intellectual scale, it's because this is the place where Hashem put Himself into. So the Alter Rebbe says, you want God, you want integration of Hashem into your life, study Torah. There's nobody who can say, I can't study. You, you could say, I can't study for eight hours a day. That's true. That's true. But there's nobody that can say, I can't study. The Talmud says, even if a person studies a chapter in the morning and a chapter in the evening, that's already something. He has fulfilled his obligation of Torah study. And later, commentators would explain this to mean a chapter of what? A chapter of Mishnah, a chapter of Talmud. A chapter means a piece. You dedicate a chapter of time. Every morning before I go to work, 10 minutes of Torah, five minutes of Torah. Every night before I go to sleep, a unit of time dedicated to Torah. And counterintuitively, because Torah is infinite, so long as you're giving it your all, you will access God's infinity equal to the amount that somebody studying Torah for eight hours will do. Because for them, eight hours is what they have. For you, you only have a half an hour, you will experience what you need to experience in that half an hour. And I spent two years in uh, Australia, in yeshiva. And it was a very, very special two years because it was dedicated to mentoring younger students. What happens is there's, in the general yeshiva system, there's six years of study. Three years equivalent to what we call high school, ninth, 10th, and 11th grade, and then three more years of post-high school, you call it Talmudical seminary, let's say the equivalent. But after those six years, you have the option of volunteering. It's not part of the thing. You can volunteer to go to another yeshiva and help younger students in their learning. Some people go for one year, some people go for two. Rabbi, I'm sorry. You're 25. Yeah? Yes. You clarify. You were younger. Can you, can you give us the timeline chronologically? Okay, I'm going to go off the record for a second. Sorry. So I, I signed up to, to, to do this two year stint in Australia, and uh, I discovered that the Rebbe had personally guided these groups, what they call Shluchim. Like you have shluchim to communities, lifetime. This is a two-year shlichut to, uh, to Australia. The Rebbe had personally guided since the first pair of boys went out in 1967. He'd given them a lot of attention and incredible amount of, 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 of his time. And uh, one thing that came up repeatedly in the Rebbe's talks to these boys, because they would always be concerned. I'm going to, to mentor other boys. That means so much of my day is being taken away from myself and now being given to others. So when will I be able to grow in my own service of God, my own learning of Torah? So the Rebbe quoted a, a Talmudic statement which says that sometimes God can make your mind 1,000 times purer than somebody else because you're involved in helping the community. And so he, he, he said these words in a private audience to the, to the Shluchim. He said, what would take others 1,000 hours to learn will take you one hour because you've dedicated yourselves to this, uh, to this shlichut. And, uh, huh? Did it happen? 
Definitely to the to, to other people that I know. But but the the, the 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 spiritual idea behind that, it's not a magic trick. It's because the nature of Torah and the nature of godliness is infinity. When you're in touch with infinity, infinite things can happen. And so in our context, a businessman who only has the half an hour to put in will find himself absorbing what he needs to absorb in that limited window of time. I had a, a friend, I have a friend, who, uh, he's an older friend, not my age, about 20 years older than me. His father used to work incredibly hard to make a living for his family. I think he even worked two jobs, something crazy. And uh, every evening he would come home exhausted, wiped out. His wife would serve him dinner. And then almost every night without fail, he would tell his wife, honey, I'm going to learn. He would sit on the couch, open up a book and fall asleep like this. Just, com- just complete. There was, there was zero strength left in him. But he always said, I'm going to learn. He fell asleep. So my friend of mine used to say, I'm 100% certain that the Torah went into him. <laughs> those, those hours of Torah books sitting on his chest, Hashem knew what he was going through. I'm absolutely certain that the Torah went right into him. And the proof is in the pudding, because all of his children remained Torah observant and became incredibly wow. amazing activists and, and, and do incredible work. It, it was a sincerity, it was an honesty. He wanted to learn, he couldn't. He did what he could and Hashem made it happen for him. So the Alter Rebbe is demanding. He doesn't uh, let anybody off the hook. Nobody can say I can't study. Nobody can say I can't meditate. You can find one minute, five minutes, ten minutes, maybe more. Because no one's neshama is too limited to be a carrier of Hashem. Does watching a YouTube video of why, why, or somebody, does that count? Of course. Okay. If, if, no, if, if it's Torah. If it's Torah, because we, 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 have, we have many, you know, uh, discussions, talks, which are all beautiful. But we're talking about Torah learning. Learning, this is Torah learning. We're learning, we're learning the Tanya. So that's the first thing. Torah study is the vehicle, the way to integrate whatever it is that you need into your life. Find the time to make it part of your schedule. <clears throat> Doesn't say it in the Tanya, but I'll add something from a different Hasidic text. A different text, a different uh, discourse. It says... Besides for learning when you can, be hungry for more. No, 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 no. He's getting a, a jump start in the next part of the chapter. Besides for what you learn, be hungry for more. Show Hashem that you want to do more. You put me in this in the circumstance where I need to, where I need to uh, spend the time that I need to do to make a living. 
But you know what? I wish I could have more. And when Hashem sees the wish, He will help facilitate. Because when a Jew sincerely wants something, He'll make it happen. But that's only half of the story. The other half of the story is tzedakah. For the person that's wondering, or that's feeling the challenge of, I want to be a part of it, but I don't feel like I can. I want to integrate Hashem into my schedule, but I, I don't have the time for it. So the author of it says, take a look at what your life does revolve around. For whatever reason, your life revolves around making money. That's the way we live. We need to make enough to support a family. We need to make enough to put food on the table. We need to make enough so we can live as human beings. So essentially, he says, if we can, if we can look at it from this viewpoint, your life, your energy is invested in the process of making money. So consider this. If we could find a way to bring Hashem into that process, we'll have accomplished what you're looking for. <coughs> you come week after week studying the Tanya, you want to know, how can I transport it? How can I export it? How can I live it in more ways? I'm tied up with this. So the Rebbe says, let's merge the two. There shouldn't have to be a contradiction between the Jew's material pursuits and his spiritual pursuits. How do we do that? How do we open the door within the money-making process for Hashem? We open it up through tzedakah. Rabbinically, you're supposed to give one-tenth of all profits earned to tzedakah. Net profit. After taxes. After taxes. <laughs> Everybody's calling it right? Oh, it, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it, it, I, there's, there's actually a story from the Rebbe on that. There was a there was a, a big guy in Australia that uh, was involved in stocks, and he would report to the Rebbe every time the stocks, because the Rebbe had been guiding him de- with detail which stocks to invest in, and uh, whenever the stocks would go up, he would report to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe wrote to him in his holy handwriting, a tenth. Actually, Tim, you wrote a fifth. I'll talk about that in a second. So they give a fifth of all clean profit to tzedakah. Wow. But that, so, so rabbinically, rabbinical obligation is a tenth. It comes from the Torah because the Torah talks about giving a lot of tenths. Yeah. Farmers used to give a tenth to the Levi, Maser, and then a tenth to, the, to, uh, to bring to Jerusalem, a tenth for the poor in some years. So this came down to what's called Maser Ksafim, tenth of the money, where you give a tenth to charity. Then, and the Alter Rebbe jumps to this, in this chapter he doesn't go with the tenth. He goes with the fifth. Twenty percent. Twenty percent to charity. Double. Twenty percent to charity. What happens when you give twenty percent to charity, says the Alter Rebbe? Firstly, the 20% that, that you're giving away becomes holy money. The money has become godly because you've given it to a godly cause. You've given it to poor people. You've given it to people that deal with poor people, physically or spiritually poor. And not only that, says the altar. Because if you give 20% to charity, it's easy to think, okay, I brought God into 20% of my life. 
What happened to the other 80%? That, that's staying with me. That's going to my car, my vacation, my, my supper. So the Alter Rebbe says a very interesting thing. The fifth elevates with it the other four portions. The 20% that you gave elevates the 80%. How so? Doesn't talk about it here, but in the, remember we're, this, the Tanya has five parts. We're in the first part of the Tanya. It has 53 chapters. In the third part of the Tanya, the very last chapter, the 12th chapter, the third part of the Tanya, the Rebbe illustrates it with uh, a piece of the Talmud that says every day in the Holy Temple there was a sacrifice brought on the altar, Korban Tamid, the consistent offering. Every morning, every evening, there was a sheep brought on, on, on the Mizbeach. And the, this Korban consisted of three things, an animal, a flower offering, and, um, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a wine and oil offering. Yeah, I'm confusing it. Yeah. So the Talmud says the animal that was brought in the temple elevated the entire animal kingdom in the world. The flower that was brought in the temple elevated the entire vegetable kingdom in the world. And oh, it was the salt, not the wine. The salt elevates with it the entire inanimate kingdom of the world. So one korban contains within it the energy of the entire world. So the Altar Rebbe says in the same way, your 20% that you're giving away elevates with it the other four portions. And I, I heard once an explanation on this, actually from Rabbi Waiwa. It doesn't say it in the Tanya, but it, it, it rings very true. When a person gives his money to charity, what he's really doing is redefining his money. Money as the world construes it is a vehicle to materialism. To give away money to a higher cause is basically saying I'm redefining the cash. I'm giving it a new meaning. Now its meaning is not physicality. Now its meaning is spirituality. So if you have redefined your money, that redefinition applies to everything that you have. You've shown yourself to be capable to be a person who looks at the things that he has in his life as potential vehicles to connect to God. So yes, you're keeping 80%. That's because Hashem wants you to keep 80%. He wants you to live in the way that you should live. He wants Jews to be wealthy. He wants Jews to have a good life. But He wants you to show yourself that you look at money in a different way. The Talmud says, it was a great Rabbi Shmuel. He was so great, he wasn't even called Rabbi Shmuel. He was called Shmuel. There's a different Mishnah which says the greatest title that a person could have is to be called by his first name. You ever notice we don't call Avraham Avinu Rabbi Avraham? One of the greatest rabbis of all time. Moshe. We talk about Moshe. We do say Moshe Rabbeinu, that's true. But typically we'll just say, you know, like, what do you have, like on a first name basis? Yeah. The greatest title is, is to not have a, a rabbi before. So Shmuel was sitting with a Persian astrologer. His name was Avlet. Or maybe it's pronounced Abalet, I don't know, something Farsi. So they're sitting there, and 
they're watching people crossing a pond to go to work. As a, a bunch of people were, they were reed cutters, they would cut reeds for a living. And they're watching people. And this Persian guy is giving commentary as the guys walk by. This guy's gonna be rich, this guy's gonna be poor, he's predicting things. Anyway, one guy passes by, Avlet goes, this guy is going across the pond, but he's not coming back. So Shmuel said, if he's Jewish, he's going to come back. Sure enough, the day goes by, and there he is, crossing the pond back with a pile of reeds on his shoulder. So the Persian guy is blown away. He says, come here. Calls him over, tells him, tells him to take off this package of reeds that he had. He opens up the package and there's a snake, a dead snake sliced in two. So, you know, he can see something's there. So Shmuel says, Rabbi Yid, tell me what happened today. You must have done something to merit this, you know, saving from death. So he says, I'll tell you the truth. We crossed the pond every day. We're a group, a group of reed cutters. And every day we gather for lunch. But the way it works, not everyone brings their own lunch. Not everyone has enough money for that. Everyone brings a little something. We do a potluck. Every day, one guy goes around with a big basket, goes around the circle, collects all the food, he put it in the center, and now we have a chalant, and we eat. He says, today I noticed from the corner of my eye there was one guy who didn't have anything with him. And I knew that he was going to be embarrassed when it comes. So I volunteered to collect the food. And when I came to him, I pretended to take something, but I didn't, I made a little thing, and then I continued... And that was it. So Shmuel said, now I get the meaning of the verse, Tzedakah saves from death. It doesn't just save from you know, being hit by a truck. The angel of death had decreed upon this man to die today, but Tzedakah saved him. Some of you might know the story of Rabbi Akiva's daughter. Rabbi Akiva was told on the day she was born that she would pass away on her wedding night. Imagine that. The day she'll be married, she'll die. And uh, Akiva kept it to himself. He, he never wanted to tell this to his daughter. But she got, uh, she grew up, she found her chasen, and this is a date for the wedding. And Akiva knows what's coming. So he's kind of joyous on one hand, sad on the other. And uh, Comes the wedding night, the wedding is over, they had a feast, the whole thing. Rebekiva goes home, his daughter goes home. And the next morning, they're back for breakfast. He says, what happened? She goes, what do you mean, what happened? I woke up, it's in the morning. He says, I need to come to your house. He came to the house, came to the bedroom, and he sees that her pin, her hairpin from the night before was stuck in the wall. She took it off where she wanted to sleep. So he pulls out the hairpin, and along with the hairpin comes out the head of a snake. And he pulls out a whole snake. So he says to his daughter, what did you do last night at the wedding feast? Tell me everything that happened to you. And she says, uh, nothing special. I was at the feast, we were partying, we were this, we were that. And then I noticed there was one poor guy standing at the corner. And he, he wasn't invited. They would typically invite all the poor people in the town. And he, he didn't have a place. 
So I gave him my portion, my, my meal portion, I gave it to him. So he said, Now I get the meaning of the verse, Staka saves from death. This is, of course, this is, this is the extreme. But what, 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 what giving tzedakah in this way does, it opens a new channel of direct connection to God. The Rebbe would write, I mean, the amount of letters that we have from the Rebbe writing to people that were in business or looking for business, making the decision to give a tenth or even better, a fifth to charity will open new channels of Parnassah for you. So, so how did that uh, equate to the pig killing the snake in the wall? She put it in and killed it. She killed it. It was about to kill her that night. The snake would have come in. She put the pin and, and killed it. I guess in those days, that's how they did it. They didn't have dressers, you know? This is a Talmudic question. You ask, this is, when you're in the Talmud, you'll ask the question. But that's, this, this is the idea. It's 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 it really is about a new a new attitude towards towards the physical. You know, the, the midrash tells a story. I'm saying I'm saying tzedakah stories that are coming to the top of my head. It was a uh, a couple who, who used to, who was well off, and then uh, for whatever reason they lost all their money, and the man found a job working plowing in a field. And one day he's behind this pair of cows are plowing, and a poor man comes over to him and says, Hashem has decreed upon you that you're going to have wealth for six years. Do you want it now or do you want it at the end of your life? Mm-hmm. So he looks at him and says, please don't play jokes on me. I just lost all my money. What are you, a beggar? Get away. You know, I don't have time for this. I'm in the middle of working. Anyway, half an hour later, the guy is back. Elijah the prophet it was. He's back. Six years of wealth. You want it now or you want it later? He says, knock it off. You know? But he came back a third time. Came back a third time, he says, you know what, I'll ask my wife. He goes home. Says, there's a man that's telling me we have six years of wealth. He came three times already. He wants to know if we want it now or we want it later. So she says, anything good is worth having now. Take it now. So he goes back to the field. He says, we decided we want it now. He says, go home. Even before you enter your house, you will find that you've been blessed by Hashem comes up to the front of his house, his kids were playing in the dirt in the yard, and as he approaches, they hit a chest, and they're digging a box, and it's full of gold coins. And his wife is out there waiting to, you know, waiting to tell him the news, Hashem has blessed us, and she says, listen, I, th- I think we should spend these next six years helping as many people as we can. Perhaps if Hashem sees us using the money in this way, He'll give us more. It's a good idea. So they became they were very rich, but they began to now help as many poor people as they could. Six years later to the dot, an old man shows up at the house. He says, Rabid, your six years are over. I'm here to take back what God has given you. He says, listen, when you gave me the blessing, I consulted with my wife. Now before you take it back, I want to consult with her again. It's okay. Goes back to his wife. I know we did all these good things but Elijah is back to take the money so she says go tell him that if he has somebody else in mind that's going to use the money the way we did let him take it 
He went out, he told this to Elijah, Elijah says, you spoke well. You get to keep it. You get to keep it. That's right. That's right. One of the one of the greatest talks that the Rebbe gave was when he redefined three common English mistranslations that have to do with the New Year, actually. And if you're around enough rabbis, you'll hear for sure in the next month. You'll hear this again and again. There's three primary ingredients to uh, having a new successful year. Tshuva, tefillah, tzedakah. We always talk about that in the Machzor, the, the prayers for Shem Yom Kippur. Tshuva, tefillah, tzedakah. And we commonly translate them as repentance, prayer, charity. CPR. Wow, <laughs> CPR. I love that. <laughs> charity, prayer, repentance. And the Rebbe in the 1950s explained how each of these three words is a mistranslation. Because repentance, by definition, means that you regret, you want to cancel out what happened before, and you want to start fresh. The Hebrew word teshuva means return. Real teshuva is to understand that at your core you were never tainted. You're just returning to who you really are. There's nothing to wipe out. You have to wipe away the dust that came on. But you're returning to your core. Prayer is typically understood as a request. You're asking something. But the word tefillah in Hebrew means to connect. Prayer is not just an experience of asking for stuff. It's an experience of connecting to Hashem. But the one that's relevant to tonight is tzedakah. Tzedakah we typically translate as charity. But charity, by definition, means a kind act. An act that uh, you do out of your own volition because you're a beautiful person and a loving and giving person. The word tzedakah means righteousness. Giving tzedakah is the right thing to do. The money that you have, the way you said it before, it's called a picadon. It's a deposit from God to us. And God says, I want you, I'm giving you this wealth so that you can share it with others. Of course, when you do it, you're doing an act of charity as well. You're doing a kind act. You're doing a giving act. You're, you, you are expressing that part of your nature. But really, at the, at the core of it, tzedakah is God's way. And when you use the money to use the, our, our, our words before, when you redefine your attitude to your physical wealth, the way Hashem wants you to redefine it, what, you, what happens is your entire wealth gets elevated. I came across an absolutely amazing letter from the Rebbe. I don't, I don't see these typically. He writes, when a person gives a tenth to charity, Hashem prepares for him tenfold Bitsimtsum. Tenfold um, condensed. When a person gives 20% to charity, <coughs> Hashem prepares for him 20-fold baharchava. 20-fold expanded. Unbelievable. 
which means that whatever you give, you get back 10 times as much or 20 times as much. The Talmud says, Aser bishvil asher. Give, give a tenth so you become rich. The Hebrew words, it's a play on words. Tzedakah is the only mitzvah which you're allowed to test God. God says, Test me out. Test me out. Give a tenth, see what happens. Give a fifth, see what happens. It's the only time that Hashem says, Try me. It's fascinating. Everything is by divine providence. The fact that we're learning about tzedakah before Rosh Hashanah is very much connected. The Rambam writes that in the times just before Rosh Hashanah, every year and after, those 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Jews would increase in tzedakah. And it seems like a custom. You know, it's a new year, you want to be good, so you give more. But the Rebbe once explained a deep significance and why specifically in this time of year it's important to give. Because every person has two relationships with God. We have the relationship of din. Din in Hebrew means like, you know, letter of the law, judgment. We get judged, we deserve it, we get it. And then, we all love when God has a relationship with us of tzedakah. He gives us, he's generous. Yeah, we didn't deserve it, but he gives us anyways. So the Rebbe says, a person approaches Rosh Hashanah, he can ask God for a good year in two ways. He can tell God, listen, check some balances. Let's check it out. Let's draw up the thing. I'll show you what I did good. I'll show you what I did bad. I think the good outweighs the bad. Give me a good year because I deserve it. And there's another way we can approach God when we ask Him for a new year, which is to say, I know I may not be the most deserving, you're such a big God, you have such a big world, you have so much for so many, give me a good year. Be generous, be charitable. Be charitable, Hashem. Give some tzedakah. I could use it. So the Rebbe says, we get to choose what type of relationship we have. If our attitude to other Jews or to other people is one of strict din. You know, I'll see if it equals out. I'll see if it makes sense. I'll give you this much, that much. Then, commensurate with that comes the godly flow into your life. But when a person has an attitude of tzedakah, he's generous because it's the right thing to do. And because it's God's way, that when he comes to God and asks for the new year, Hashem says, you're going to have that tzedakah way too. You chose the tzedakah path, I'm giving you the tzedakah path. Torah, tzedakah. A person wants to know, how do I bring Hashem into me? Study, find time, a little time, and you will manage to squeeze Hashem into it. And what the majority of your life is being consumed by, bring Hashem into there too. And this, just like for the tzaddik, his deep meditation and his tremendous Torah study 
brings him a soul experience, brings him a joy, an energy to serve God, you will find that for you and for me, and it's one of the only times the Alter Rebbe talks in the first person in this chapter, he describes what a person says to himself. My soul is so small. My soul can't contain the great godliness that Moses' soul could contain. It doesn't matter. You'll bring Hashem into your little window. And he concludes with two lines. Don't let the joys you experience be a contradiction to the sadness you might experience over other parts of your life. Because in the end of the day, we're limited beings. We're bringing Hashem into a limited part of our lives. But it's hard to forget sometimes that there's another part. Our body, our materialism, which is making us, bringing us down. It wants to view everything as a burden, as a pain. They're not mutually exclusive. Some people think one cancels out the other. I can't be happy because I'm also sad. Maturity is the ability to have both at once. The Zohar says, Joy is implanted in my heart on this side. Crying is implanted in my heart on that side. A Jew is able to live a paradox. A Jew is able to both lament the parts that need improvement and celebrate the parts that he's accomplished. A Jew is able to, as the Rebbe would say, live on the edge of the sword. Just like God is a God of paradox, so too the Jewish people are a people of paradox. We know how to we know how to dance. We know how to balance. We know how to be both. And when we have that attitude, we'll be able to celebrate the little things. Because we're not thrown off. It doesn't disturb us. The fact that this morning may have been something else. Well, now you're in this. Now you're in a good space. Now you're in a godly space. Now you're in an infinite space. You know, infinity doesn't need to be limited by time. One second of infinity is complete infinity. And with that message, in effect, the Alter Rebbe puts the curtain on the first half of the Tanya. I've given you the discipline. How would you is supposed to live? complete self-control of thought, speech, and action. I've given you the psychological methodology behind it. How to bring up the energy, the traction, the joy. And the final thought, to cross the hill into the practical, study Torah, and give tzedakah. Should be a good year.